Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 45 of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Today we're talking about one of my favorite romantic composers, Hector Berlioz, and his incredibly famous Symphony Fantastique. So we have talked a lot about the German romantics, and now we're moving to France, where Berlioz was born and lived for pretty much all of his life. His father was a doctor, and after just a few years of schooling at a seminary, Berlioz was privately tutored by his father until he went off to college. And while it was obvious that he loved music, taking lessons on flute and guitar, with his father encouraging his teachings, Berlioz was slated to be a doctor. He even began schooling in the Paris School of Medicine and stayed there for two years. However, he never really liked his studies and kept turning to music as a creative outlet. Curiously, before moving to Paris for his medical school, Berlioz had never really been exposed to the popular composers or even really done any of his own composing. He just knew that he loved music and had a thirst to know more about it. So he bought a guitar and sat down in the quad of the Paris Conser- no. <laughs> Well, kind Paris of like was, that, though. Yeah, well, see, yeah, Paris was the perfect place for him to learn more. He was able to attend the renowned Paris operas and hear the works of the most cutting-edge composers. He found a particular favorite in Gluck that would last his whole life. But these performances weren't enough. He frequently holed himself up in the Paris Conservatory Library to study scores, and he even schmoozed his way into some of the conservatory classes. And finally, in 1826, he quit medical school, and he formally enrolled in the Paris Conservatory. And his father hated this, as he had planned for Berlioz to take over the family medical business. <laughs> and as a result, he decreased the funds he had been sending Berlioz, and so our hero was reduced to the classic image of the starving artist, living with friends, and barely scraping by. A theme that we will revisit later in this podcast. <laughs> However, he was a star pupil at the conservatory, as many of his early compositions won prizes such as the prestigious Prix de Rome. And seeing his son's success helped Berlioz's father make some amends with Berlioz, because at least his son hadn't made a complete fool of himself when he left medical school. Part of his win in the Prix de Rome, however, stipulated that Hector Berlioz had to go abroad for three years to Italy, as it was the Rome prize. <laughs> <laughs> this did kind of put a damper on things for his big dreams. First, he did not like the current state of French music and really wanted to put his own unique spin on things. But being out of Paris, his influence was diminished. Second, he had just fallen in love and written a fantastic piece about it. His symphony fantastique. <laughs> However, leaving Paris meant leaving the girl he had fallen in love with. And we'll come back to that. It's a story that is worth it. Uh, but we will finish up with the rest of the life of Hector. <laughs> so despite being away from Paris, Berlioz still tried to influence the Paris scene with his radical ideas. 
So, as we mentioned, and as you know, we've talked about the German Romantics extensively, but Berlioz really brought a new meaning to the Romantic movement, because he believed that music really should tell a story and have very dramatic feelings. He admired Beethoven's music for its dramatic effects, and we can see him drawing on and expanding on Beethoven's own works. For example, he really liked Beethoven's idea in writing the slightly programmatic Sixth Pastoral Symphony, and he expanded that with his own ideas of very programmatic works. So, to sum up the style of Hector Berlioz, it's really like, he, he was kind of a drama queen, and <laughs> his music is like putting on stage makeup. You have to really overdo it so even the people furthest from the stage can get it. Once Berlioz returned to Paris, he settled into his career of promoting his type of music in Paris. He conducted grand concerts and operas, and not just of his own creations. He really tried to fully explore the drama in the works of Beethoven, and also brought out other big names like Weber and Rossini, and he also made many conducting trips abroad in an effort to further spread his ideas outside of just Paris. And he still conducted a very large variety of music that did fit his own tastes. Unfortunately for all his self-promoting and fantastique ideas, he never really gained a cult following during his life as he desired. Perhaps his fire was just too much for the world to handle during that time. However, he primed audiences for what was coming with the next generation of late romantics many of whom we've been talking about in the past few episodes. Berlioz's health had been deteriorating for years due to an intestinal disorder and a deepening depression as he saw his family and friends died one by one around him. He finally died at the age of 66 in 1869. So listener, take yourself back to a time when you have had an all-consuming obsession and think of the, particularly some of the crazy or stupid or kind of, perhaps, for lack of a better word, cringy public things that you've done <laughs> for some love that never actually worked out. That's Symphony Fantastique in a nutshell. <laughs> Berlioz composed this piece in 1830, not because of some ideal fancy that he thought might be cool, but because he needed an outlet for his all-consuming obsession. And what obsession, you might ask? Well, he had just attended a performance of Hamlet and fallen madly in love with one of the actresses, Harriet Smithson, and he apparently wrote her letter after letter declaring his love and asking to meet her, and she never responded. Which, you know, was probably the most professional thing to do on her part, ignoring the crazy fan. <laughs> but... Berlioz was no ordinary fan. He did not have to just resort to putting letters in her locker or, you know, <laughs> sending her friends to tell her cryptic messages on the high school field. That's all what this feels like, right? <laughs> A little bit. He could get public performances. Berlioz commanded an audience. So he declared his love for her in musical form with an entire symphony. As we have alluded to, the symphony is a highly programmatic work, and though it starts out innocently enough with the hero, in this case an idealized Berlioz himself, meeting the girl of his dreams, it quickly descends into absurdity. In the program notes, we have Harriet 
Berlioz's love interest, referred to as the Beloved. So from this innocent beginning, it soon goes a bit mad, as the hero consumes opium and dreams he has murdered the Beloved. This in turn leads to him, spoiler warning, being dragged <laughs> off to the scaffold in classic French form, and after his head has been squarely and precisely chopped off, he still witnesses a witch's funeral procession, including the beloved who, herself, has turned into a nasty witch. Berlioz, that's probably not the metaphor that you want to display to your beloved if you're declaring your love, calling them a nasty witch. And the tale of real-life Berlioz doesn't get any less fantastique. Berlioz was the first composer to write program notes for the audience to actually follow along with what was happening in the story, just so that there was no mistaking exactly what was going on. Interestingly, Harriet Smithson did eventually see a performance of this work, and to everyone's surprise, was intrigued enough to actually agree to meet Berlioz, and upon meeting her, he immediately proposed. Of course she said no, <laughs> but Berlioz had a cunning plan. He took out a vial of opium, telling her that it was a lethal dose, and claiming that he would swallow it if she didn't say yes. And she said no again, and he did swallow it. So Harriet, <laughs> obviously panicked, changed her answer. Berlioz produced the antidote, and the two lived unhappily ever after. And not even really ever after, because they eventually separated, though Berlioz did still support her household after the split. What a story. <laughs> um, Alright, so despite the nefarious purpose of this symphony, it was actually a milestone in Berlioz's music career, because it was forward-thinking, well-liked during its run, and has stood the test of time. So let's explore some of what makes it so fantastic. First off, and arguably the most influential aspect after the addition of program notes, is Berlioz's orchestration and instrumentation. So first, he seems to really have liked the auxiliaries in the woodwind section, which is something that not a lot of composers had yet experimented with. When we're talking about auxiliary instruments, we mean not standard. So for example, the flutes, both of them, get to double on the smaller piccolo. And the second oboe doubles on English horn, granted not the most out there. But the clarinets get to play around with the small E-flat clarinet. And there are four bassoons rather than just the standard two. So it wasn't just the woodwinds that get this treatment, either. Berlioz went heavy on the brass. In addition to the normal orchestration of four horns and two trumpets, there are two additional cornets, three trombones, which were just getting popular, and two ophiclides. Ophiclide, in case you don't know, is a very low brass instrument that really isn't used anymore. So in modern times, these lines are instead played on the tuba. 
The combination of all these really low instruments allowed Berlioz to get some unusually low and dark tones that are quite powerful and quite unheard up until this time. So let's now go for an overview of the work as depicted by Berlioz's program. First, we hear a theme termed the ID fix that represents the beloved. This theme is a bit like the leitmotifs of Wagner that you've heard so much about on this podcast already, but is in a way more useful, because the rest of the symphonic movements have enough of their own style that when you hear this theme, it's easily identifiable, as opposed to some leitmotifs that are easily hidden in the texture. This ID fix melody does show up in some way or another in each of the following movements, and it's easy to morph it into what's actually happening in the story. For example, in the first movement, when the hero first meets the beloved and is tormented by the thought of her, in Berlioz's own notes, quote, The melodic image and its human model pursue him incessantly like a double ID fix. And so here we hear that doubleness in the music. The next movement, titled A Ball, is in waltz style. So, although this is a form of its own, it serves a programmatic purpose here. Berlioz's work directly depicts the events of a dance. And we still hear that the hero is constantly afflicted with thoughts of the beloved, even here in the gaiety of the ball. In the third movement, the hero ventures into the peaceful countryside. Berlioz's notes say, quote, He hears in the distance two shepherds piping a ronde de vache in dialogue. And so we hear the English horn and oboe trading back and forth a traditional shepherd's tune. The hero sits and thinks about the calm of the countryside and the beloved and is filled with calm and hope. And then the movement ends with thunder rolling in from the distance as depicted by the timpani. And then again, we hear the Grande Vache, but only in the English horn. The other shepherd has stopped replying. This serves directly as a metaphor for our hero that his mad love is unrequited. So, Allison, this all sounds pretty tame so far, right? Yeah, pretty tame. Nothing sort of out of the ordinary. Sounds great. <laughs> uh, 
movement forward takes kind of a left turn here. <laughs> because our hero has decided to take a lethal dose of opium. Because how can his life go on? However, he miscalculates the dose and it instead, quote, plunges him into sleep accompanied by the most horrible visions. So, in this dream, as we mentioned, he kills the beloved, and because of that, he is sentenced to death. So this movement, March to the Scaffold, is the jaunty march of the French people, joyfully parading him through the streets to the scaffold in true French fashion. But where's the ID fix in this movement? Just before the hero loses his head, he has one last vision of the beloved, heard coming out of the brass kerfuffle with a beautiful solo clarinet. Right before the hero's head bounces down the stairs of the scaffold. And finally, we come to the unusual fifth movement of the symphony, which is called the Witch's Sabbath. Here, there are ghouls and gremlins of all types, and in the orchestra, there are all types of extended techniques. We hear the flutes and piccolos cackling maniacally, which includes a downward bending of the pitch. And the strings sound like skeletons dancing around thanks to a technique called kolengno, where they bounce the wooden part of the bow on the strings. This movement also gives us one of the most iconic E-flat clarinet solos in the instrument's repertoire. Here, the E-flat clarinet gets to be the center of attention for almost a whole page's worth of music, while it plays a demonic version of the Beloved's ID Fix. According to Berlioz, it, quote, has lost its character of nobility and reticence. Now it is no more than the tune of an ignoble dance, trivial and grotesque. And the E-flat's clarinet's timbre is just perfect for playing this little monster of a melody. We also hear a sort of theme and variations in this movement. This scene is meant to be a sort of funeral for the hero given by the evil witches, and what better piece to have as a funeral march than the old Gregorian chant, the Dies Irae. We hear it belted out in the low brass, and then hear a sort of fugue around it for the rest of the movement. 
However, the witches aren't terribly interested in the funeral proceedings and begin their wild dancing as the funeral progresses. It all ends in kind of a mess. You can't trust these demons. <laughs> but it's an exhilarating rush to the finish for the audience. about you, but I don't think that story would lure me to meeting a wild, crazy fanatic. <laughs> and you know, it's just its just absolutely crazy. And some of the stuff that we hear in this piece is absolutely crazy as well, but it's all listenable. It's all exciting and evocative. And I think that's a, a really big accomplishment that something born out of such passion and frenzy in Berlioz's life has created a work that stood the test of time uh, and become something actually of a model for programmatic late romantic music. And that really was what Berlioz wanted. He wanted music to be full of passion and to really express exactly what you were feeling. So whether that was extreme sadness or extreme happiness or anything in between, he really wanted you to be able to hear that in the music and as we can see, a lot of composers coming after him did also follow that, trying to be more evocative with their music. So thank you for listening to this episode of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. And if you've enjoyed what you've listened to today, we've certainly enjoyed making it. You can let your friends know or leave us an, uh, an iTunes review or one on Google Play. For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Allison. And I'm Asa. Thank you so much for listening. Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique was performed by the DuPage Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Barbara Schubert. You can find the Coffeehouse on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to share us with a friend. You can find shareable links by liking our Facebook page. You can email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. 